Um, Let me pray for us one more time, and then uh, we're going to jump into God's word. So let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we ask you now that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Oh Lord, open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your beautiful word. And what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. What we are not, please make us all for the glory and praise of your dearly beloved Son, who lives with you, who reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit, one God forever blessed and forever praised. Amen. Amen. Authority gets a bad rap these days, doesn't it? Authority gets a bad rap these days, but it's, it's easy to see why. We all know those in positions of authority who have misused their power to hurt people. I imagine at some point in all of our lives, we've been wronged by someone who is in a position of authority. Maybe they use their authority to harm you or to hurt you. The abuse of power explains, at least in some measure, why people these days are so suspicious of authority. And they view everything through power dynamics. Now, back in 1887, there was a, a guy, Lord Acton, and I only know one thing about Lord Acton. He said this. It's a phrase that y'all are probably familiar with. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts what? Absolutely. Now, he said, he's, this is the whole sentence. This was in a letter. This is what he said. The full quote is this. Listen up. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, end quote. Well, beloved, this morning I have the absolute joy to draw your attention to someone who is the exception to that rule. I have the joy to draw your attention to someone who has absolute power, to someone who has All authority in heaven and on earth, who, according to A.W. Tozer, possesses an incomprehensible plenitude of power, and yet someone who uses his omnipotence not to harm, but to heal the hurting. Someone who uses his omnipotence not to ruin, but to rescue the perishing. So with that, let's open our Bibles, if you haven't already, to Luke chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 11 to 17 this morning in Luke chapter 7. If you're using the the Bibles and the chairs, you can find that on page 863. And while you're turning there, let me briefly set the context of our passage, kind of diving into the gospel of Luke. Jesus, at this point in the story, in in the gospel of Luke, he's been ministering in the northern part of Israel, up in the area called Galilee. He's been traveling from village to village in and around the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He's been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's been performing signs and wonders in the midst of all of Israel. And he's been proclaiming through his message and through his actions that he is the Messiah. 
the son of the living God, the promised king from Israel. And he's been showing us what Luke has been saying all the way through his gospel, that the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And so we get to chapter 7. In the first 10 verses of chapter 7, Jesus rescues the sick servant of a Roman centurion who was on the brink of death. But then in our passage this morning, in verses 11 to 17, Jesus Christ comes face to face with death itself. What happens when the one who is the Lord over death attends a funeral attends a funeral this is what holy scripture says beginning in verse 11 soon afterward he that is jesus went to a town called nain and his disciples and a great crowd went with him and as he drew near the gate of the town behold a man who had died was being carried out the only son of his mother And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and touched the bier, and the bears stood still. And he said, young man. I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we're going to walk through this passage verse by verse, and then at the end, I'm going to draw some implications for us. Now, I know some of you are note takers, and you're wondering where's the outline. You'll get it at the end. Just, just relax, okay? Everyone just relax. We'll get there, all right? Let's look at what this passage is teaching us, Okay. Notice in verse 11, Luke begins by setting the scene. Look again at verse 11. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So soon afterward, Jesus has just healed this servant of the centurion who was on the brink of death, and we're told he's leaving this base of operations. We know from chapter 7, verse 1, he was up in Capernaum. And so now he begins traveling with a sizable entourage down to a little town called Nain. You can see that. Now, in the back of your Bible, there's a bunch of maps that you may not ever use. So let me just describe for you where Nain is, okay? Jesus is walking from the the, up here in the north, south, southwest, down to this little town called Nain. It's about 25 miles. It would have taken Jesus a whole day's journey to walk that 25 miles to Nain. Jesus likely set out in the morning. It would have taken him all day to get there. And because it was going to take him all day to get there, he probably got up and and started going pretty early. Now, what's striking in the text is we're not told that Jesus informed his disciples at all why they were leaving to go to Nain. 
They just get up and they start going. He doesn't disclose to his disciples the purpose of the trip. Now listen, unlike Naples, Nain was not a destination city. It was insignificant. There's no, there's no beaches there, okay? It was located in the Jezreel Valley. It's, it's on the, you still see it today. It's on the slope of a little hill called Moray. Centuries earlier, if you know your Old Testament, you know that on the other side of the hill, there was a Shunammite woman that was the only son of a Shunammite woman was raised from the dead through the prophet Elisha, right? But nothing like that had ever happened in Nain. And so Jesus, picture in your mind, is walking with his disciples southwest as 25 miles, and then he finally arrives at Nain. And what does he meet? Verse 12, look at verse 12. He meets a funeral procession. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. So a group of mourners from Nain are passing through the gate and they're on the way to bury this young man. He had died. His corpse is being carried out. Now you know according to Old Testament law, you would bury someone outside the city because death is defiling. Death makes one unclean. So you put a corpse outside the city. Given the distance that Jesus had to travel from Capernaum, it's likely that it's twilight because he's traveled all day to get there. It's most likely, we know from other funerals in the New Testament, that you don't, in the Jewish culture, you don't keep a body out overnight. So think about this. There's no embalming like you did in Egypt. Lazarus was buried, what, the same day that he died. Jesus was buried the same day that he died. And so it's likely, even, even when Jesus left that morning, maybe the man hadn't even died yet. But by the time Jesus gets there, he's, he's dead, and they're, they're carrying him out. They did not have hearses in the first century. And, they're, you're, you're, and you're, if you use the ESV, it says they're carrying this body out on a bier. Or a, it's like an open coffin. It's like a, a wooden stretcher or plank. And this funeral procession would have included the family and any other relatives, and as we have seen, the townspeople, oftentimes you had professional mourners that would be wailing and singing dirges to magnify the grief, to express the grief of losing a loved one like this. But of all the funerals in Scripture, this might be one of the saddest of all. Look again at verse 12. Notice A man who had died was being carried out. Notice this. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So Luke indicates that not only was this poor mother grieving the loss of her son, we're told that He's her only son. And on top of this catastrophic grief of losing your only son, we're told that she's a widow. Her husband is dead. She's already buried him. Perhaps she's already made this march to the grave before when she buried her husband. But on that sad day, at least her son was by her side. 
Not today. This poor woman is walking to the graveyard alone. Yes, the town is with her, but in many ways she's alone. Widows, as you know, were some of the most vulnerable in Israel. That's why God has such a heart to protect and provide for widows in his law. Given the loss of her only son, this widow had no one to protect and provide for her. One commentator said she is, as it were, an orphaned parent. The family line died when her only son died. Her present is in jeopardy and her future is gone. She's already lost her husband and now she's going to bury her only son. If you read the Old Testament prophets, when they describe the pinnacle of pain, they often use the imagery of the death of an only son. Jeremiah 6.26 says this, O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. Make a most bitter lamentation. This poor widow faces a bitter lamentation. The entire town recognizes this, and so they join her in her grief. But in many ways, she's walking alone. And it's at this precise moment that we begin to grasp why the Savior has made a 25-mile trip on foot to Nain. Look at verse 13. Don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. Verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Now, Luke intends for us to understand that the reason the Savior made this journey was for this specific woman. And you can tell because even in our Bibles, in the original as well, there's one word repeated three times in verse 13. Did you notice? Her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. There's a huge crowd of mourners, but Jesus came for her. The Savior's heart goes out to her. His compassion is lavished upon her. Now, can you imagine walking up to a weeping, grieving widow and saying, Stop crying? But the one who's speaking these words, do not weep, is the Lord. Did you see that? Did you know? Look again at verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Now, Jesus in the Gospel of Luke has been called Lord by angels. He's been called Lord by demons, by John the Baptist, by the disciples, by a leper, and by a centurion. But this is the first time Luke, as the narrator, has called Jesus the Lord. It's the Lord, the one who is abounding in steadfast love. The one who is 
overflowing with compassion for sinners, he draws near to this woman who is grieving and says, don't weep. Don't weep. And then verse 14, something shocking happens. Look at verse 14. Then he came up and touched the buyer and the bearers stood still. So picture this in your mind. The grieving widow's at the front of the funeral procession. He speaks to her first, and then he does something even more shocking. He approaches the open coffin, the stretcher that's carrying the corpse, and he touches it. Touching the dead, according to Numbers 19, 11 to 22, made one ceremonially unclean. But Jesus is not a sinful Israelite, is he? He's the Holy One of Israel. Jesus stops the funeral in its tracks. He, he, he makes the pallbearers stop. He halts the whole thing. And then Jesus speaks to a corpse. Verse 14, And Jesus said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. Get up. This poor widow didn't ask Jesus for anything. There's nothing in the text to indicate she even knows who Jesus is. He simply speaks to the corpse of this young man and commands this young man, young man, I tell you, get up. We have three teenagers, one going off to college. This is the kind of thing you say to your teenagers in the morning. Hey, time to get up. You've slept through your alarm. It's time to get up. Jesus speaks the mighty words of Christ. He speaks to the dead. If you read 1 Kings 17, you remember? God restored the life of the son of a widow of Zarephath through the ministry of the prophet Elijah. Elijah prayed for that young boy to come back to life. Jesus doesn't pray. He just speaks. He's the Holy One of Israel. And the mighty words of Christ, what happens? Verse 15, this boy is brought out from the very clutches of death itself. Look at verse 15. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now, Dr. Luke doesn't want us to misunderstand what's going on here. He doesn't want us to think this is some kind of just resuscitation, like the the boy had just gone into a coma or something. It was just resuscitated. No, the dead man set up and speak. And whenever I see Luke in glory, I'm going to ask, what did did he say? What what were the first words out of his mouth, right? That's what we all want to know. What did he say? But we're not told. But my favorite words probably in this whole passage are right there in verse 15. Jesus gave him to his mother. The Savior knows more than anything in all the world. That grieving mother just wanted to hold her boy again. And so Jesus says, here's your son back. Your only son. Alive and well. Just imagine, just imagine that reunion tears of mourning 
suddenly replaced by tears of joy. Instead of a funeral, it's time for a party. It wasn't time for mourning anymore. It was a time to celebrate. Fire all the wailing women. We don't need them today. It's time to rejoice. For this, my son, my only son, was dead. And he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. Now, beloved, what are we supposed to make of all this? How are we supposed to respond to what's just happened and what's been recorded for us by Luke? Well, the response recorded by Luke for us by those who witnessed this miracle ought to inform our own response. So look at the response recorded for us in verses 16 and 17. What Jesus has revealed concerning himself in this miracle ought to fuel both our worship of him and our witness of him, okay? Our worship and our witness. Where where do I get that? Look at verse 16. Worship. Fear or awe or astonishment seized them all, and notice this verb, and they what? Glorified God. You see that? Whatever just happened fueled worship. They glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. And then look at verse 17. That's worship. Now this is witness. What happens next? Witness. And this report about him, what? Spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding countryside. So what I'm arguing is that this miracle at the gates of Nain reveals something of the person of Christ such that it fuels our worship of him and our witness of him. And so I want to draw attention, I want to draw three implications for us from this passage that ought to fuel our worship of the living God in Christ and ought to fuel our witness of him to others. So the first thing I want us to say, I want us to, number one, here's your outline. So now wake up. Here we go. Here's your outline. Number one, ponder Christ's purpose. From this text, the first thing I want us to to think about is I want us to ponder Christ's purpose, his sovereign purpose. The Lord's sovereign purpose ought to fuel your worship and your witness of him. This raising of the dead man in Nain reveals the Lord's sovereign purpose. That's why the Gospel of Luke was written. We're told back in chapter 1, verse 4, that Luke recorded these things, these eyewitness accounts, in order that we might have certainty concerning the things we've been taught, concerning all these things that have been fulfilled in Christ. And as the Son of God in the flesh, Jesus knows, he knows the future. And number two, he knows he's never late. Jesus is never late to anything. Now, we lived in the Washington, D.C. area for 10 years. And if you've ever lived in that area, and I'm sure many of you have lived in other places, you, the traffic is awful, right? And so you, you, you leave your house, you think you have a little 45 minutes to get where you're going, and then I-95 happens, and then you're, you're an hour and a half late or something, right? 
because I'm not Jesus. I'm not omniscient. I don't know the future, right? Even GPS like Waze and Google Maps get it wrong sometimes. But Jesus is never late. He's the sovereign Lord. He knows all things. He knew precisely when to leave Capernaum to travel 25 miles and to arrive perfectly at the exact right time to stop this funeral procession. Given the distance, he may have actually left before the man had died. We don't know. But here's the point. Jesus is never late. His sovereign purposes will come to pass. Now this morning... Maybe you're finding yourself waiting for some good purpose in your life. Maybe you've been praying. You've been seeking the Lord and asking him for something. It's not a a bad thing. It's a good thing. You've been waiting for a spouse. You've been praying for a child or a new job. Maybe you're just asking the Lord for one friend. A friend. Maybe there's a, some physical ailment and you're asking for healing. And as of right now, maybe this morning, it hasn't happened yet. And you're tempted to believe that either J- Jesus is withholding good from you or maybe he's just running late. Friend, listen to me. On the authority of the word of the living God. Even when Jesus shows up in the middle of a funeral, he's not late. He wasn't late that day at the gates of Nain. The widow of Nain would testify this morning. If we gave her the microphone, she would say Jesus showed up exactly at the right time. His good and sovereign purposes will come to pass. You can count on it. There was another time when Jesus seemed to arrive late at a funeral. The funeral for one of his best friends. His name was what? Lazarus. In fact, what did Martha say? Lord, if what? If you had only been here my brother would, have not, would not have died. And what did Jesus say to Martha? You know, Martha, sorry, I, I was late. I got held up on 95. No. He looked her right in the eyes and said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, do you believe this? Friend, you can trust in Christ this morning because, listen, He has ordained your season of waiting for your eternal good and for His everlasting glory. Your times are in His hands Trust his timing. He's never late. So wait for him. The fundamental posture of the Christian in this life is waiting. We're waiting. So as you wait, know that the Lord himself waits 
to be gracious to you. He exalts himself to show you mercy. And I would just encourage you, even over lunch this afternoon, reflect on times in your life where you've been waiting and waiting and the Lord has answered those prayers. And use that to reflect and encourage others in this congregation who haven't had those prayers answered just yet. Reflect on his sovereign goodness in your life. And let's pray for boldness to witness to others about the ways we've seen his purposes accomplished in our lives. So that's number one. Ponder his purpose. Ponder his purpose. Number two. Ponder the Lord's pity. Ponder his pity. I'm a Baptist, so they all alliterate. Don't worry. Ponder his pity. Ponder his pity. If there's anything in this passage that's clear is that the Lord's tender compassion ought to fuel our worship and our witness of Christ. Luke 7, the whole chapter, is really a portrait of the compassion of the Savior. Jesus shows compassion to a Gentile and his servant, verses 1 to 10. He shows compassion to a grieving widow here. He shows compassion to John the Baptist who's in prison. And then he shows compassion to a forgiven, sinful woman at the end of the chapter. The whole chapter is about the mercy, the grace, and the compassion of Christ. Jesus, in verse 13, shows us that he is the friend of sinners. So look again at verse 13. When I read this verse, you ought to think of something in the gospel of Luke. The Lord saw her and he had compassion on her. So the first thing to notice is that Jesus sees and then he shows compassion. The first step, beloved, is seeing those who are hurting. It's easy. It's really easy. To avoid seeing those around us who are hurting. Isn't it? Perhaps this morning we need to confess and repent of failing to truly see those even in this congregation who are hurting. When Jesus sees the hurting, he doesn't cross the street. Especially when we know there are those in the congregation who are hurting. It's, we don't want to say the wrong thing. We don't want to make it worse. And so sometimes we don't say anything. And instead of reaching out, we maybe remain distant and silent. But brothers and sisters, that's, that's not the way of Jesus. We don't want to respond to those who are hurting with cold hearts. And there was a, a, one of my favorite preachers. Uh, most of my favorite preachers are dead. Um, Robert Murray McChain was a pastor in Scotland. And he died when he was 29 years old. But this is what he wrote in his journal. Quote, the only cure for a cold heart is to look at the heart of Christ. His heart, beloved, is on display in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. Now, as you hear those words, don't they sound like something else in Luke's gospel? 
I'm going to give you two connections where the same words are used. You know them. Luke 10, 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had what? Compassion on him. Luke 15, 20. The parable of the prodigal son. While he was still a long way off, his father what? saw him and had compassion on him and ran to him and embraced him and kissed him. Do you see what's happening here? The tender compassion of the good Samaritan, the tender compassion of the father in the prodigal son parable is on display in the flesh at the gates of Nain. Jesus, the friend of sinners, traveled all day to show his boundless mercy to a grieving widow. Christian, if your heart is cold this morning, I want you to behold the heart of Christ. There is no mercy so great and so wonderful in all the world as that which is found in the heart of Jesus Christ for sinners. There is no one in heaven or on earth who loves you more than Jesus Christ does. This same Jesus who reached out to the widow of Nain reaches out to us who are in Christ when we face the sting of death. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, isn't He? The same Savior who showed pity to this poor woman at the gates of Nain, still lives. His heart is just as full of compassion towards sinners today as it was then. The one, listen, who made the widow's heart sing for joy at the gates of Nain lives. Do you all believe that? He lives. And he can put a new song in your mouth today. You can bring your sorrows. You can bring your heartaches to the feet of this Savior because He lives and He delights to show you mercy. He's at God's right hand, exalted in glory. But brothers and sisters, do not believe that He is distant from you in your trials. Jesus Christ the friend of sinners. He is nearer to you than the light by which you see. He is nearer to you this morning than the air by which you breathe. He is nearer to you than even you are to yourself. And there is not a sigh, nor a tear, nor a prayer that ever escapes his notice. He's alive. And he delights to show compassion to those who are hurting. So, beloved, ponder his pity. As we reflect on the mercy that he has lavished upon us in Christ, let us be eternally grateful that he saw us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And by his mercy, he made us alive together with Christ. If if that doesn't... 
if that doesn't fuel your worship of Christ this morning and your desire to witness for him, I don't know what will. His mercy made us alive. Thirdly and finally, and then we're done. I don't preach as long as Justin, amen? <laughs> he, he said to me that in a text this morning, he's like, they won't be mad if you go short. I'm like, fine, huh? I love that he preaches awesome sermons. I want us thirdly and finally to ponder his power. Ponder his power. We're pondering his purpose and his pity. And then thirdly, his power. Oh, his power is on display in this passage, isn't it? The Lord's almighty power ought to fuel our worship and our witness of him. We can see his power on display against our greatest enemy, death. Jesus literally stops death in its tracks. I love in the Gospels when Jesus shows up at a funeral, someone's getting raised from the dead. It's amazing. Our Lord Jesus has the power to transform funerals into welcome home parties. By his power, Jesus reveals himself at Nain to be the Lord God of Israel, who is the defender and the protector of widows. Psalm 68, 5. By his power, did you notice? Jesus reveals himself at Nain to be able to do what the law of God is powerless to do. The law declares sinners unclean by touching the dead. Numbers 19. But Jesus is able to do what the law is powerless to do. Jesus, the Son of God, touches the dead man. And instead of him being defiled, Jesus raises him from the dead. You see, the law can point out the problem. God's perfect law points out the problem. But it can't provide the solution. It has no power to make dead sinners alive. Jesus restores. Jesus gives life. Jesus heals. Jesus resurrects. Jesus makes the unclean clean. The law is able to declare a sinner unclean, but Jesus Christ is able to raise the dead. And on that day in Nain, Jesus touched death and he gave life. But as we keep reading in the Gospel of Luke, we all know that there was a day coming when Jesus himself was touched himself by death. A day when Jesus himself became an outcast. A day when Jesus himself suffered outside the gates alone. A day when he was deemed unclean and defiled. A day when Jesus himself experienced the curse of death in his body on the tree. And on that day, Jesus hung on the cross in our place, paying the penalty for our sins. He didn't have any sins. And for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. The one 
who died in our place. The righteous one died for the unrighteous in order to bring us to God. Death touched Jesus on the cross, but beloved, death could not hold him. He rose again from the dead, the author of life, and Jesus Christ is exalted this morning, and he offers anyone life and forgiveness and mercy and grace. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the response that this text is calling you to is to turn from whatever it is you're trusting in and to trust in the risen Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to him by faith alone. Turn and trust in him this morning. Receive Jesus Christ, the Lord over death, in the empty hands of faith. What more do you want in a Savior than is not found in the person of Jesus Christ? Friend, the one who gave life at Nain can give you life this morning. I want to mention one other thing. In this passage, I find a strong encouragement to those among us who are parents or maybe grandparents or maybe great-grandparents of those who have children who are lost. This is a glorious reminder to us, isn't it? That when our children are far from the Lord, His omnipotence is never far from them. With a word, the Lord Jesus, by His almighty power, can raise and give new life to souls that right now seem dead in worldliness. J.C. Ryle said this about this passage. Quote, let us never despair for our lost children. Let us continue to pray for them. Our young men and our young women may, long, may seem long traveling on the way to ruin, but let us pray on. Who can tell but that he that met the funeral at the gates of Nain may yet meet our unconverted children and say with almighty power, Young man, young woman, arise. With Christ, nothing is impossible. Brothers and sisters, don't despair. Keep on praying. Keep on loving. Keep on sharing. By His power, Jesus reveals to us that He is indeed more than a prophet. They said a great prophet has arisen. God has visited his people. Jesus is a great prophet and he is God in the flesh. He is the one, Deuteronomy 18 said, the prophet like Moses who would come, who would do signs and wonders in the midst of Israel. That's exactly who he is. But behold, beloved, in this passage, there is one greater than Elijah, one greater than Moses, one greater than, than the prophets is here. Jesus is the fulfillment of all this. And by his power at the gates of Nain, Jesus shows us as a kind of preview of coming attractions, what he's going to do on the last day. He's going to speak and raise the dead. 
He spoke to this dead corpse and a nanosecond later, life surged back to this body. That's what Jesus is going to do at the end of the age. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Brothers and sisters, the miracle at the gates of Nain is a preview of what's to come. We see from this text that Jesus has all power. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. But he uses his omnipotence not to harm, but to heal the hurting. He uses his authority not to ruin, but to rescue the perishing. So Christian, my challenge to you this day is to ponder his pity and his purpose and his power. Because there is a day coming when he will swallow up death forever. We read about it earlier. He will swallow up death forever. And he will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. And it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. That he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do cast ourselves down now before the majesty of your grace. We ask you from the bottom of our hearts that the seed of your word that's now been sown among us might take such deep root in us and dwell in us so richly that neither the burning heat of persecution would cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares or fleeting pleasures of this life choke it out, but that by your blessed spirit, as seed that's been sown in good soil, he might bring forth 30 or 60 or even a hundredfold, all for the glory and praise of our blessed Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.